0: scripture reading. This morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Hear what Holy Scripture has to say for us. Therefore, remember that at that time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." This is the Word of the Lord. I'm a forgetful man. Maybe some of you resonate with that. I will literally be working at my office, sitting at my desk, working away, I'll get up because I think I need to go get something, I'll walk across the other side of the house into my closet and then stand there and think, why am I here? Well, what am I doing? And then dejected, I'll walk back, I'll sit back down, sit at the computer, and then, oh yes, then I remember. I will neither confirm nor deny that there have been times where I've received text from my wife, hey. I noticed on Life 360 that you're by a store. Could you pick up some milk? And with all the confidence in the world, I text back, you got it. I'm on it. And then I walk in the house like, hey, isn't everybody happy to see me? And I see her face, and she knows and I know. I forgot the milk. It's like, I'll I'll be back in 20 minutes or whatever. I am thankful somebody has taught me how to put reminders on my phone. I don't have a secretary, but boy, that's helpful. So, if you have a meeting with me during the week know that I had a reminder the day before and an hour before, because I know that if I don't do that, I'm prone to forget, and that's not good. I recognize it's a problem. But, you know, there's another form of forgetfulness that I am just as prone to, and yet I'm sad to say that I don't think about this one as much as I should. In fact, I don't think I've ever set a reminder on my phone for this one, and this one has a much greater effect than forgetting the milk, and it's this. I am prone to forget what I was before Christ. I am, and I trust I'm not alone in this. Now, by forgetting, I am not in any way saying that I stopped believing this, not for a moment. It's just that I'm, I'm not thinking about it. And see, this one is so vital because it affects the state of my own heart toward God and toward other people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, certainly the lost, and very clearly those who are different than me. And thus it should be no surprise that God, who created us and knows us far better than we know ourselves, calls us in places like this text this morning to remember. And that's really the main point of the passage we're looking at today. Remember, brothers and sisters, remember what you were before Christ. Think and live each and every day in remembrance of this. Look back at Ephesians 2 with me. I want to reread verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here we begin with that important little word Therefore, which ties what we've been studying together over the last several weeks together with what He's about to say. You might recall that in verses 1 through 10, there was this what you were, what you are now dichotomy. and and, and we're going to see that that continues on in verses 11 through 22. In verses 1 through 10, Paul told us that before Christ, we were dead spiritually. We were enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh, and as a result, we were as far away from God as you could possibly be, being by very nature children of wrath. But for those in Christ, now… We've been made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places. We are, in fact, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So remember, don't forget this, remember who you were before Christ. I want you to notice in this text, this is actually a command. This is not a recommendation. It's it's not a, you know what? Growing grow in your faith a little bit, if you got some time for a little bit of pondering, you know, uh, it could be good for your own soul if on occasion you just take a little trip down memory lane, you know, at least every once in a blue moon, and sort of think through who you were as an encouragement to your own soul. No, 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 no. This call to remember is a command. It's something we are to do on a regular basis. And, and, and I want you to see this command governs this whole passage that we're studying this morning and in fact flows right into where we're going in the coming weeks. So this is vital. This is of, of, of top-level importance. I should point out this call to remember is reminiscent of something that you would see in the Old Testament where the Jews were regularly called to remember, remember. I am the God who rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. Here it's striking then, because now he's speaking to Gentile Christians, which is most, if not all of us in this room. I'm personally not aware of any who are of Jewish descent in our our midst. And and by the way, let me just take a second and lean in on this a bit to set the table for where this passage is going to take us when we move uh, on into 11 through 22, This passage is dealing with cross-centered reconciliation of what is, biblically speaking, the two people that are the furthest apart that you could possibly be, that is the Jews and everybody else. The Jews and… The Gentiles. And so this passage is going to get into how the cross of Christ reconciles the most fundamentally different people you could have, first and foremost to God, and by nature of that reality, then to one another as God makes up this new humanity in Christ. So that's where this passage is going, and there are profound implications that we're going to get into in our understanding of the church and our relation to the world around us. But here, what we need to focus on is the fact that this all starts with remembering. Remember, remember, remember what you were before Christ. He gives us six things to remember. I have them there on your outline. Let's look at the first one together. He says, remember that at one time you were uncircumcised in the flesh, and implied there is, and in the heart. And there's a lot going on with this one. You can see how he starts and then he kind of gets into a little internal discussion. You have to recall when you come to a passage like this that the principal sign of the Old covenant was circumcision. And and over time, the Jewish people, they actually referred to themselves as the circumcision. I mean, you can look at Philippians 3 and see how Paul once thought of himself that way, and he kind of walks through how his whole thinking changed. So, they referred to themselves as the circumcision, and in derogatory fashion, they referred to Gentiles as the uncircumcised. Right? Lots of derogatory things for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were the dogs, the uncircumcised, you know, more literally, we bring this over as the uncircumcised, more literally, they called the Gentiles foreskin. So, just kind of keeping score here, hey, foreskin, come over here. That's not a term of endearment, right? Calling somebody foreskin probably isn't going to woo them over into your tribe. And interestingly here, Paul actually goes after this particular line of arrogance by pointing out that the circumcision that the Jews prided themselves in was something done by hand. And in so doing, he's pointing to the reality that even in the Old Testament, there was a much more important circumcision that was being looked ahead to that would only be fulfilled in Christ. Listen, in Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses commands the Israelites, he says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart so that you'll no longer be stubborn. Now, that command was obviously something they couldn't do. He understood that. And so, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses, not unlike Jeremiah looking ahead to the new covenant, not unlike Ezekiel looking ahead to the new covenant, Moses looks ahead to a time where God's going to do this internal work, and he says… And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. And that's symbolic language, right, of the heart change that comes through the new covenant that Jesus ushered in through His death and resurrection. And so, in the book of Romans, for example, Paul says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is the matter of the heart, done by the Spirit, not by the letter." So here in this first remember, Paul says, remember, you Gentile believers. There was a time you were mocked as foreskin, as you were indeed uncircumcised in the flesh, which was a sign that you were out. You were not in. And also, remember that you were uncircumcised in heart, just like those making fun of you. What's more, in these next five are very clear and very painful. He says, remember at that time you were separated from Christ. Now, in your outline, I say you were separated from the Messiah, which in context is a better way to take this. You need to keep in mind that the thrust of this text is this Jew-Gentile dichotomy. And so, before faith, of course, you could say that both Jew and Gentile were separated from Jesus, the Christ, but that's not Paul's point here. Remember, Christ or the Greek Christos is not Jesus' last name. It's not like Chris Bass, Jesus Christ. No, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, or Messiah. And so, the point here is that before being brought near, the Gentiles were separated from the coming Messiah, who was, in fact, a Jewish Messiah. Remember, He was the long-promised, long-awaited Jewish king. And at that time, the Gentiles knew nothing of this, and quite frankly, they could have cared less. But it was true, the Messiah would come through Jewish descent. Paul says in Romans 9, from their race, from the Jewish race, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, even if you think of Christ's mission, He came through and for the Jews. Even though, of course, there were indicators all along of His ultimate worldwide mission, but He came of Jewish descent, right? His apostles were what? All Jews. The church began where? Jerusalem. And and the Gentiles at that time, they were way off here, separated from all of that. The hits keep coming. Not only were the Gentiles separated from the Jewish Messiah, notice that they were also alienated from citizenship in Israel. And again, for most Gentiles at that time, before Christ, they would have said, who cares? Right. Their attitude might have been similar to a Texan being told, you're alienated from California. It's like, I don't care. They, they can have it, right? But, but far different from being alienated from California, being alienated from citizenship in Israel was in fact of vital importance because Israel was God's chosen people. And so, to be alienated from Israel was to be alienated from the blessings of God upon His chosen people be alienated from the blessings of God," he goes on to say, "'was to be strangers to the covenants.'" And this, of course, brings together God's covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David. These are the covenants of promise, promise to the people of God. Promises like, I will be your God and you will be My people, it doesn't get any better than that promises like you're going to be a great nation, you're going to have a great land, one from your line will come and will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And yes, part of that is ultimately pointing forward to the inclusion of the Gentiles, but until that came through Christ, the Gentiles were excluded, strangers to these glorious covenants, thus leading to the last two, which really are the kickers here in this text, Before Christ, Paul says that the Gentiles had no hope, no hope. Now, by that, Paul is not saying they had no hopes and dreams like we would talk. He's not talking about what we might refer to as psychological hope. No, if, if they had no psychological hope, all of the Gentiles would have always been depressed and probably mass suicides taking place. No, they most certainly had your, your, your typical hopes, right? The hopes of, of marriage, hopes of children, hopes of grandiose accomplishments in the world, hopes of making wealth, hopes of making a, a good name for themselves. But none of that is Paul's point here. His point is that they were without the hope of salvation. They were without the glorious hope that the Bible holds out for us of knowing God now and for all eternity, the glorious hope of being a part of the kingdom of God. That they did not have because, as he says next, they were without God in the world. And and, and it's real important that we understand what Paul is saying here, because he's clearly not saying that there were no gods, (lowercase g, among Gentiles. It's not at all what he was saying. If you know sort of ancient history, you know that there were entire pantheons of gods among the Gentiles. Religious practices in the first century were more common than they are today. Worship of false gods was everywhere. There were temples all over the place. If you want to go worship for this reason, you know, maybe we need some crops. Let's go to this temple. If if we need the fertility god, we go to this temple. I mean, come on. You could even have your household gods so you could do your family devos. You could even have pocket gods. I mean, it, it, false worship was all over the place. So, Paul wasn't saying that they had no gods. His point, and I think it's one we need to make sure we stay really clear on in our context is that without the worship of the one true God, the God of the Bible, you are in fact without God in the world. Now, that's not a popular message today. In fact, today we're told that's intolerant. We're told that all roads lead to heaven, that each world religion is simply Each different culture's way of getting to the same place, but we must be clear. That all sounds great when people talk about it. It gives everybody a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, but the Bible will not allow for such a teaching. Don't miss that. Paul is saying, even with all of their worship, they were without God in the world. So, this is bad. It is a bad place to be. This is a different yet complementary way of getting at what he drove home in verses 1 through 10 when he said that outside of Christ we were dead spiritually and enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh. Here he's getting at how bad our plight was from a different angle as He's ultimately going to push in a slightly different yet certainly related direction in the coming verses. Here He addresses Gentile readers, and in so doing, He's addressing most of us, and He says, remember, do not forget that at one time you were uncircumcised in flesh and heart. You were separated from the coming Messiah. You were alienated from the citizenship with, people, with the people of God. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope precisely because you were without God. This is all very important because he's going to start digging into the horizontal in verses four and following, but it's clear that the horizontal begins with the vertical. Listen, we sinful humans, Jews, Gentiles, or any other differing people groups will never, ever ultimately be reconciled to one another until we are reconciled to God. Because until that happens, we will not be willing to look past our differences. Our preferences will what? Rules. We will not forgive one another. We will not genuinely forbear each other's differences. We will never get to that place of putting the needs of others above our own until we have first come to grips with the reality that our greatest need is not world peace, but peace with God. See, we must always remember what we brought to the table was nothing but our own spiritual deadness, slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. Thus our lives were characterized by rebellion against God, where we lived out actively the lusts of the flesh and were by nature children of wrath. We brought nothing to the table but our own sin. We were without the Messiah, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants, having no hope and without God, but now, but now, something, praise God has changed. Look at verse 13. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is parallel with verse 4. You were dead and enslaved, and thus under the wrath of God, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. Here we were all Gentiles in the flesh, separated from the Messiah, alienated from the blessings of Israel, strangers to the covenants, no hope, and without God in the world. But now, but now, you who were far off, way out there, have been brought near." The language here is being far off, being brought near. Context of Jews and Gentiles. This is picking up on language of the Jewish temple. If you know anything about the Jewish temple, you know that the most important place in there was the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, the, the, the mercy seat of God. That's the place where the presence of God was said to dwell. And no one, no one goes in there except the high priest, and that only once a year and even then, only with very specific prescribed sacrifices. Just beyond that, you have the holy place where the priests minister. A little bit beyond that, you've got the court of the Jews, where only the Jewish men could go. A little bit beyond that, you've got the court of women, where only Jewish women could go. And then way, way off, you got the court of the Gentiles, about as far away from the presence of God as you can possibly get. Listen, there are cheap seats, and then there are cheap seats. When I go to a ball game, I like the seats I typically can't afford. I I like the seats that are usually above my pay grade, which is why I prefer high school sports. For, For baseball, for example, I want to sit right behind home plate where I can get a feel for the velocity. I want to see the movement on the pitches. I want to see the look in the batter's eye when a fastball goes whizzing right past his ear hole. When I go to a pro game, that's not usually where I'm sitting. I'm usually sitting in the kind of seats where your son tries to encourage you because he sees your own discouragement in the seats, kind of the encouragement of, hey, Dad, these are actually not bad seats. You know, Dad, these seats, we can see what the blimp sees. And you're like, oh, we can see what the blimp sees. I don't want to see what the blimp sees. I, I have had, for a few events, one that I can think of as a big parade, where I've been in the really cheap seats. Uh, by that, I mean no elevation gain, where elevation at least helps me. No, I'm like 50 rows back, and you can, you know, sort of tell something's going on up there. They're, they're excited up there. I don't know why, but they're at least excited, and you can hear, you know, something's up, but you can't see squat. Well, I think to put it mildly, the court of the Gentiles was worse than that. They were way out there, and even if they had good binoculars, all they would have better, seen was a better view of the guy's neck in front of them. It's like, hey, Fortune Otis, you ought to get that mole looked at on the back of your neck. It doesn't look good. Look, they, we, were as far off as you could get. But check this out. Jesus comes, and He goes to the cross. And on the cross, we're told that the temple, as Jesus dies on the cross, the veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing new access to God. And now all who are in Christ, even those who were once way far off, are brought near by the blood of Jesus. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we are brought right into the Holy of Holies, as it were, where as God's people We come into his presence with confidence because and only because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has reconciled us to God on the cross. Jesus removed that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands of judgment. He he, he did that by paying for it himself in full as he took our punishment. By faith, he cloaks us in his righteousness. So that when God looks on us, he sees Jesus and he's thrilled with us. In so doing, in and in through the blood of Christ, all those who believe, praise God, have been brought near. For as the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. Amen. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, this reconciliation that we're talking about is there for you. But you must repent and believe. You must believe in Christ, what He's done. And so, I would plead with you, friend, to do that today. Look to Jesus, trust in Christ, and delight even today in your newfound reconciliation with God. For believers, remember, remember, don't forget this. Do not move on from this. Whether this happened in your life recently, like I know it has for some, or 65 years ago, remember this like it was yesterday. That's the command here for us this morning. Dear Christian, remember that at one time, you were in the cheap seats. Worse than that, you were way far off from God. Remember, you were dead spiritually, living in light of your slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And you were by nature under the wrath of God. Remember that you were separated from the Messiah, alienated from the chosen people of God, strangers to the covenants of promise with no eternal hope without God, but God through the crosswork of Christ brought you near. And I want to end spending a couple of minutes thinking about why this command to remember is here at this point in the text. And I'm not going out on a limb here because where we're going in our text over the next few sermons in chapter 2 helps us understand why this command to remember is here. I would submit to you that there are two reasons that are inextricably tied together. Here they are. Number one, remembering what I was, a dead slave as far away from God as could possibly be, remembering that affects how I think and act vertically. Remembering that affects how I think and act vertically. And this first one is so important because, second one, remembering what I was, a dead slave as far away from God as I could possibly be, and thinking and acting in light of that vertically, then affects how I think and act horizontally. In other words, if I forget, dare I say it, when I forget what I was, dead in my sin, enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh, completely estranged from God, as far away from Him as I could possibly be, if I forget that and somehow get to thinking that I'm God's gift to God, He sure is lucky to have me on His team, then not only does He owe me something, but so do all of you. That's not a good place to be. On the other hand, when I remember, I was dead, I was in bondage, I was estranged, as far away from God as I could possibly be, but God in His grace through His Son brought me near. Now I have no boast before God or before any of you. And you could spend all day on the implications that flow from this, if I don't forget and, 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 and not forgetting and remembering, I'm daily overwhelmed by the reality that He's forgiven me and how much He's forgiven me, and he's, and he's brought me near, then how can I not forgive you and bring you near even if I feel hurt? What about Jesus' parable of the unworthy servants? I trust it's not a favorite text of most of you. I never hear anybody quoting it. but it's got a powerful message. Jesus says in Luke 17, "Will any of you who has a servant or slave, that's bond servant, bond slave? Any of you who has a slave plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, "Go prepare supper for me." And dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward, then you can eat and drink. Does He thank the servant because He did what was commanded? So you also… Now, here's the point. You can get all tied up on the first part and think, well, that guy's being a jerk. No, the, the point is this. When you, who are servants, bond slaves of Christ, when you have done all you were commanded, say. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. How's that for expectations management? See, the point of the parable is that last line. When we think of ourselves as unworthy servants, boy, it's pretty hard to get offended. But listen, if that parable, when it rubs us the wrong way, I would submit to you it's because we're dealing with at least temporary memory loss. I mean, isn't this how Paul can say in Philippians 2, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, I'm going to bring myself down, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. When I forget who I was, I don't want to count anyone more significant than myself. I'd have to climb down off of my own throne to do that. But see why this is so important and why I said this flows to where this is going. This passage is moving us to the new humanity, where God reconciles us not only to Himself, as glorious as that is, but also to one another. And the only way we stay reconciled to one another is to follow the command of this passage, remember, 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 church, let us remember what we were before Christ. And thus, let us fall down every single day and thank Him. Thank Him that once we were His enemy and He's brought us near and we're seated at His table. Let us remember and thank Him and praise Him. Get that right? The horizontal starts to make sense. Get that wrong? Horizontal is a train wreck. Brothers and sisters, let us remember. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed forgetful people. We are poor blind beggars who so often act like we are God's gift to you, that we are amazing in and of ourselves, that you sure are fortunate to have us on your team. Oh, Father, help us to remember. Help us to remember what we were before Christ and in your grace what we are because of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that our response would be a thankful heart toward You, a heart of worship, and a heart of humility that moves out as we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, and indeed, even as we look at a lost and dying world around us. We pray that You'd help us, help us to remember. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.